Hello and Happy New Year from The Lancet, our first podcast of 2017. We're kicking off the year with a fascinating extended discussion of a topic that cuts right across clinical medicine and global health, the Right Care series. Earlier, I spoke to the guru behind this initiative, Dr. Vikas Saini, president of the Leon Institute in Brookline, Massachusetts in the United States. And I began by asking him to give us a definition of Right Care. Our definition of right care is health care, medical care that's delivered and that is tailored for optimizing health, optimizing well-being. And we think that is done by delivering care that is needed, wanted, clinically effective, affordable, socially equitable, and responsible in its use of resources. It's a very challenging definition, but we think that is the definition of right care. Presumably, we're talking across all health settings, are we here, not just the United States, where you're speaking to me from? Yes, we are talking about all health settings uh, around the world. In fact, uh, that is part of the aim of the series, because uh, when we first started uh, talking to The Lancet about the series, we were asked to make it more global in its views, which is appropriate for The Lancet and its audience. The series aims to put the issue of quality and appropriateness of health care at the center of the global agenda, really. The issue of poor quality care, variance in care, and the frequent delivery of care that lacks a sound evidence base is a worldwide problem. We think it affects patients, it affects the health of communities, and it certainly affects healthcare budgets. So that's not strictly a U.S. problem, though it is definitely a problem in the U.S. And tell us about your institute, your president of the Laon Institute and this organization, this agency that you are head of, is doing a lot of advocacy campaigning, grassroots work, isn't it? Specifically within the American health context. The Lown Institute uh, is named after the great cardiologist Bernard Lown, who at 96 is vigorous, uh, active, very interested in what's happening in the world. He's retired now, but uh, we're inspired by his vision, and for many, many years, he has always emphasized the importance of the human connection and, and the relationship within healthcare, and has felt that needed to be elevated in discussions about healthcare and healthcare policy, not just as a matter of philosophy or style or the poetry of medicine, but really as central to an understanding of how you achieve good clinical outcomes without the excessive use of technology or unnecessary testing or treatment. Inspired by him, we have been working uh, for many years now, starting with a conference in April of 2012, which we call Avoiding Avoidable Care. We've been focused on uh, questions of right care, though we didn't use that frame initially for these years. The point of doing this is to marry some of the professional and social responsibility of clinicians with the technical challenges we face when we are making clinical decisions on the fly. We know that many care decisions are discretionary. We know that quite often the science is fuzzy. You know, we think we know and, and we do know a little, but we don't always know as much as we need to. 
And as I think any clinician knows, uh, the patient in front of you is, is a whole human being and is the patient in front of you, whatever the randomized trials say or show, they can only be guides to what you do in that moment. We have been uh, trying to formulate it and create a network within the United States that can begin to embrace some of these core ideas of patient-centeredness and appropriateness and think of them as a matter of social and professional responsibility and begin to articulate activities and strategies to truly promote uh, right care, what we now call right care. Now, turning to the series itself, there are four papers, and we'll skip fairly briefly through them because obviously we do encourage everyone to read the series, published online January the 8th. But the first paper, important just to touch on that for a moment because this concerns medical overuse. How much do we know about this, about how common is it, and what are the main reasons for overuse? Well, we have reason to believe that overuse is epidemic around the world. We know from some studies that, for example, rates of inappropriate total knee replacements you know, can vary from 26% in Spain to 34% in the U.S. We know that rates of inappropriate hysterectomies uh, vary around the world, 20% in Taiwan, 13% in Switzerland. We know that C-section rates are rising in many countries. Research indicates that there are probably 6.6 million C-sections around the world that are actually excessive and not absolutely indicated and needed. This is often due to a number of factors. Uh, often it's due to a lack of investment, meaning in investment in workforce, training, and facilities that would enable and promote the less invasive treatment options. So that said, we actually have very little detail on a country-by-country -country basis using the same approach and the same instruments. So it's very difficult to have country-by-country -country comparisons. And I think one of the things that our series indicates is that there's a huge amount of work to be done here because, uh, you know, estimates of uh, overuse require a lot of methodological innovation, I think. We know in the developing world there is a lot of overuse, but it's mostly anecdotal. For example, in India, there's lots of anecdotal evidence. And sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, it's a country I know, I was born there, and I go back regularly, in which, you know, there's sometimes outright abuse. But it, it doesn't appear as a systematic review in the peer-reviewed literature. If, if it appears at all in public, it's in the popular press. And so organizing some basic reviews and research surveys, both qualitative and quantitative, looking at claims, many different methods would really be necessary to fill in so many of the knowledge gaps that we have. You know, I think where there's a will, there's a way. And one goal of our series was to raise awareness enough to begin to stimulate the interest to study overuse in, in much greater detail. And we know that it's an important matter because, for example, with the demographic changes underway in so many countries, the rapidly aging population, even in countries like China, there is a fiscal storm ahead and it's going to make healthcare less and less affordable for more and more people. So we think it needs urgent attention. There's a lot that we don't know. Uh, so we have to get busy to understand and, and, and know more about it. 
And that leads me actually into question two, which is, I suppose, the, the opposite to, to paper one, which concerns underuse. And whilst you just mentioned fiscal issues there, money uh, in the health systems, individuals have to pay out for in cash for for getting health services in some context. It's too simplistic, isn't it, to say that overuse is doctors overcharging or trying to make too much money from patients and underuse is just because people can't afford the health care. It's not as simple as that, is it? No, not at all. Though I have to confess that I was prone to some of the same simple thinking until our editors at Lancet really posed that challenge to us because I had the assumption that the issue of underuse is well studied. There's a huge literature. There is going to be an enormous amount, and there's no way we could possibly write about that in any way that would make a contribution. But as we started looking, what we began to understand is there's a lot of evidence broadly that in low and middle income countries, for example, you know, at the steep part of the curb, the more you spend on healthcare infrastructure and healthcare systems, the more health does actually improve. It's a very steep and dramatic curve when you look at it. You know, more healthcare at a certain point is better, absolutely, until you reach a point where it isn't and then you have diminishing returns and then less is more. But that's such a broad brush, it doesn't begin to characterize all the ways in which underuse happens. So affordability is, of course, a huge piece. You know, people need to be able to get the care, you know, pay for the care, whether it's private like in India and the U.S. or private insurance or whether it's government funded like in so many countries. Even when someone can afford or has insurance coverage, there are many treatments that are simply not provided or not available. You could think of them as orphan treatments. And the causes often are that the science hasn't been properly disseminated. There isn't a, a strong fiscal sponsor that's really pushing that treatment. One clear example from paper two uh, is you know the use of antenatal steroids, where an initial study was published, uh, a randomized trial uh, in 1972, showing the benefits. Uh, and even in 2011, after multiple RCTs and systematic reviews confirmed the value of this treatment, a survey of 29 countries showed that only about half were receiving that treatment as a preventative. And so that's an example of underuse that is you know, essentially related to a mix of culture, knowledge, availability, and the like. It's really important to recognize that, you know, underuse happens everywhere. It happens in rich countries. It happens in the United States and, and many other countries. And it happens in, in low and middle income countries, probably more. I would say the other insight from this, uh, from this paper for us is that Again, while there's a broad understanding about the health needs of uh, low and middle income countries, there's not a detailed roadmap that actually allows you to marry the population needs of a given locale or uh, demographic to specific kinds of investments in, in facilities or workforce or all the dimensions that go into a, a really functioning healthcare delivery system. You know, there's a risk, and we're seeing that risk, of simply 
putting investments in, in whatever makes sense in other countries or you know in the developed world, putting them in and replicating many of the same patterns, some of which will be good, but many of which will will not be good. So even underuse has a, a lot of dimensions that require study. And just on that theme of, of dimensions, paper three actually looks at the main drivers of poor medical care and it does it across sort of three different dimensions, doesn't it? Do you want to just touch on that briefly? I will. I think the issue is clearly that the drivers of poor medical care are a complex system. And in any complex system, there are many variables. But it is not useful or helpful to throw up your hands <laughs> and say far too many. Uh, so for the paper, we try to distill them into three categories, money, knowledge, and power. And what did we mean by that? Well, so money is what we've been talking about a little bit. It's, it's the fiscal arrangements that a country or a healthcare system may have. That includes, you know, the obvious ones of how do you compensate clinicians, doctors, or nurse practitioners in this country and elsewhere. But it also is how do you compensate, how do hospitals get revenue? And there are subtleties there which are worth understanding, which is even when you try to avoid uh, perverse incentives and ask hospitals to be on a sort of budget, even if it's a diagnosis-related group kind of a budget, if the particular diagnostic groups, if particular kinds of procedures or even bundles have an inordinate profit margin, if the estimate of the cost versus the amount of payment is wide, it will drive behavior and it has. So we have an example in our paper, I think it's from France, where one of our co-authors is, pointing out that cataract surgery, I think, had such a high profit margin that it ended up being uh, substantially a, a hospital-centered activity. It's not at all clear that those kinds of subtle questions are subject to much review or scrutiny, and they're warranted. And of course, the big, big question is always, um, overall, what is the coverage scheme? You know, what is covered if you have insurance? Who makes those decisions about coverage? So all of these uh, in the money domain represent key drivers of what care is delivered, how it's delivered, and what's appropriate. On the knowledge side, as we said earlier, there's a lot that we know, uh, but it's not always properly disseminated. And there's also a lot that we don't know or that we know, but with a great deal of uncertainty. And quite often, what passes for certainty or certain knowledge really ain't so. It can often create wide areas where there's a lot of discretion and a lot of variance, which is one reason we see so much variance in care delivery all over the world. And the third power may be less familiar as a concept to clinicians, to doctors in practice, but really, you know, it has to do with all the ways in which, you know, the nature of care is managed, it's presented, who's doing the presenting, what is, you know, the right course of action. It depends on relationships between, you know, primary care clinicians and specialists, between hospitals and outpatient settings, between different regions of a country, between different groups in a society and whether they're more empowered or less. They all play a role. And I think unless we at least begin to think along those lines, we won't have a clear understanding of how 
healthcare delivery actually happens and why poor care happens and, and how we can fix it. So, you know, my view is greed, competing interests, poor information are universal drivers and they form a kind of ecosystem of poor healthcare delivery. And in that sense, citizens all over the world really have to begin to understand these forces if we're going to, you know, defend and promote our own financial security, our safety, health and well-being. Finally, I suppose in a slightly more positive light, although that realism that you've just described is absolutely welcome and that's at the heart of the series. The final paper in the series does talk up some very practical actions. I think you refer to them as levers, don't you? Leverage. Going back to your point about knowledge, things that we actually know about upstream can make a difference and can actually fly politically to reduce overuse and underuse and to improve medical care. I think the first thing I would say is that we are in the early innings of addressing these issues and finding solutions, we have to think that it's going to take some time. We know that there are some levers. Uh, it's, it's too early to assess how effective they will be, uh, but I can certainly offer some ideas and some examples. For instance, there's a substantial bubbling and growing movement focused on the theme of shared decision making. And the core idea is that if patients are engaged more, especially in discretionary aspects of decisions about care, and given enough time and information, they will quite often opt for care that is truer to their own preferences and needs. It turns out that is usually, at least in, in the countries where this has been assessed so far, usually less care than the providers are inclined to provide by about some 20%. So it does seem systematically we providers tend to offer more and, and if patient input isn't there, quite often that gets delivered uh, with uh, processes like shared decision making that is significantly reduced. So that's an important one. It's not available in every setting. Implementation is not possible in every setting. But as a philosophy, as a way of thinking, it's certainly important. And there are many tools for shared decision-making. Some are, are better validated than others. And so that's an important part of a solution. The evidence-based medicine movement has been around a long time. I think there, you know, there's debate these days. One of our co-authors at Stanford, John Ioannidis, has you know, publicly talked about some of the limited results after 20 years. But there's no question that we need practical tools. One of our co-authors, Gordon Guyatt in Toronto, has talked about practical tools that we can use to create rapid cycles of assessment of research, dissemination, especially with technology, and then monitoring adoption and assessment, and then repeating that cycle so that we can try to create improvement cycles that are faster. I think that's promising. Again, the jury is out. I think there's no question that how we generate knowledge requires a revisit. I think many clinical studies would benefit from unbiased funding sources, that is sources that are uh, without commercial interest. That's a longer conversation, but I think it's important. And then in the end, I think what we have to talk about is that citizens, if they want the right care, they're going to have to start demanding some things. You know, they're going to have to demand that research meet their needs. Too much of research doesn't meet their needs. But that would also mean paying for some of the research and monitoring its design. And who and how will that happen? I think it may require appropriate governmental policies. But 
that's why I often say that the path to right care has to involve an increase in democratic participation. The best way to determine right care in that sense is really to engage citizens at the local level because they are the experts about their own needs. And clearly on matters of technology and expensive care, there are trade-offs. And those trade-offs are really a societal question. I don't think those are things that we can solve with tools or techniques in the exam room. I don't think the exam room is the place to think about ideas of rationing because what we're talking about isn't rationing at all. What we're talking about is ineffective care and using a lot of the resources that we would be able to harvest and applying it to more effective care. There are uh, studies and groups of citizens when they gather and deliberate about those trade-offs, they come to very sensible decisions. So I think without their participation, decision-making around healthcare policy or spending is too often subject to profound political rhetoric and, and frank exploitation. So that is an important dimension to any solutions we, we seek. And certainly, you know, within the larger context in the low and middle income countries where universal health coverage, UHC, has increasingly been embraced, we have to be concerned that with coverage comes a number of other dimensions that are put in place, transparency, some attention and understanding of the nature of corruption and conflicts of interest. We need to understand that coverage is not the same as access, and we need to understand that access is not a guarantee of actually getting the right care. And getting quality care. We must close it there. Good luck with the launch of the series. I'm sure we're going to be returning to this because it sounds like we're at the beginning of of a kind of a new vernacular here about uh, the future of healthcare and, and, and what people should be expecting from it. I believe we are. Thank you so much.